This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Chuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're speaking with Justin Sung. Justin is a former medical doctor and co-founder of I Can Study. I Can Study is an educational organization working with thousands of students from around the world. In today's episode, Justin shares with us a wide breadth of his approaches to learning more efficiently. You'll learn the skills and enablers that makes us a good learner, easy steps you can take to avoid burnout, and discover new ways of consuming knowledge. Let's jump in. Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for joining me on The Bottom Line today. For those that don't know you, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? So my name is Justin Sung. I'm a former medical doctor, now a learning coach, entrepreneur, the co-founder and head of learning at I Can Study, which is an international training organization that teaches people to learn more efficiently. I did look at your bio. I think you do more than that, or you've got such an extensive resume. Where did the passion for education and learning come from? I've actually always been passionate about learning and education from a young age. And when I was like 10 years old, my mum would pair up these younger students that wanted to have some of my studying influence, I guess, rub off on them. And from there, I started tutoring. And when I got into university and I got into medical school, I started tutoring a little bit more. And then eventually it just grew and grew. And I ended up just transitioning to that full time eventually. Dive deeper into that because you're in medical school. You are a doctor. What did you study? Was it general medical? What was the... Yeah, well, when you go through medical school, you're studying everything. And then when you work as a doctor, you're working in everything, rotating around as well. So I was a junior. I'd only been working as a doctor for a couple of years in public hospitals, rotating around different departments and things. But then halfway through medical school, that's when I created my first company. It was actually a nonprofit. It was a charitable company based around education. And the idea was, there's all these things that I've learned now in university and through a little bit more life experience that I feel I could have given me such a big advantage if I knew that stuff from when I was 14, 15, 16. And so I thought, why is it that these skills are mostly taught in university or professional life? Is there any reason we can't start teaching that in high school more to get those benefits earlier? So that was my hypothesis is that we could. So I created a program to try to do that in schools. That's a previous life now. Uh, (laughs) I've learned a lot since then. And that's why now I specialize in teaching just transferable learning skills and attributes. When I was researching and thinking about learning more, I thought no one's ever taught me how to learn, how to study, how how to grasp the concept and actually comprehend something. No one teaches you how to learn. I've got two young girls, a six-year-old and a 10-year-old. And I just listen to them, just, you know, what's, what they're doing at school. And they teach them stuff, right? Maths, English, writing, reading. But there's no subject on mm. comprehension of learning. So it's really interesting that you got into this field. Is there thousands of you that teach this? It'd be a very select few, I would have thought. So I have to put a bit of a caveat or disclaimer here because there is a shift in education now. We are trying to teach some of these skills a little bit more. However... The stuff that's being taught is not necessarily 
taught in a way that is relevant to the real world pressures that students typically face. So there are researchers that produce amazing research in learning science, and I'm never going to be able to come close to that. And there are these teachers that are just sweating, you know, blood tears on the front lines trying to educate. And I'm never going to be that deep in, in that kind of environment. But I'm able to sit in this position that's directly between them, where I'm able to go deep in the research and deep in the practice at trying to bridge those two things together. One of the things I realized was that a lot of the learning skills that we teach, they're either overly theoretical or overly ideal. And so when students are trying to use this in real world context for their modern day assessments, it doesn't actually hold up. It's not sustainable. So that's one of the things that I recognized early on. So the stuff that I teach is really performance and practice oriented. It's has to stand up to real world pressures and it has to be deeply rooted in the research. I don't know anyone really that works in the space that I do. If there are, you can certainly count them on the fingers of one hand. Yeah, I, I would have thought so. So it's it's just a real niche that you've created, which is fantastic. And hopefully there's more of you because I think the world needs it or you've got to create something that's scalable, which we might talk about later. But let's start talking about learning. So amongst many things, obviously your expertise is in learning. You've coached and teach learning. Let's talk about what makes someone not a good learner. Like what, what are the, the habits or things that you straight away go, that's not good learning skills or what makes that? So there are learning skills and then there are attributes. And I sometimes call those learning enablers. So for example, you could have someone that's amazing at being able to process information. They've got a great memory. However, if they are terribly procrastinating, then mm. they're not enabled to use those processes. And so if we divide them in these two different areas, a lot of people will think about the learning skills and they're definitely important for sure. However, what I found is that the learning skills are often less relevant and less important than the learning enablers. These are the things like the mindsets and the perspectives, the time management, the task management, the prioritization, the growth mindset. Because without those, someone that doesn't have good learning skills would never be able to develop better learning skills. This is a problem I have a lot with the current mainstream approach to it is that we're often very status quo. We sort of say, okay, well, we've got all these learners that don't have some of these skills. Okay, so what are we doing for them? But the conclusion is people with better skills perform better. There's not as much focus in terms of, well, how do we need to develop these skills in the students? Often it's, well, how can teachers help to facilitate these skills in the students? But teachers are already overwork, you know? So it becomes a sort of you know, catch-22 where these learners don't have skills and they're not performing, and no one is there to really teach them. Teachers are then expected to teach it to them, but they're already overworked. And then we've got these learners that have some of these skills that are doing well, and we're saying, yep, the research says that, yep, you would do well. It's all is going as is predicted. So the actual skills, I think, are less important than some of the attributes. For example, just like what I mentioned, growth mindset is a really, really big one. It's not an easy thing to develop deep, transformative learning skills. It's not one of those things that you can do overnight. So there are going to be mistakes. There is going to be significant trial and error, and there has to be a really reflective process. And if the mindset is, I'm going to give this a go for 20 minutes, and if it doesn't produce results, that's it, then the learner is not going to be able to persist through to create the transformative change that they need. So one of the biggest focuses that I have in my practice is actually teaching that mindset to even give them the chance to develop those skills in the first place. It's a term that gets thrown around a lot, that growth mindset. Yeah. It's one of these, 
it was a bit like what's your why when Simon Sinek yeah. brought it out and everyone you started using it and then now I've started hearing growth mindset. Can we go a little bit deeper into that? So what does that mean? How do you teach it and sort of your views on in growth mindset? Yeah, so I've been involved in sort of the learning development space. I see sort of how corporate tends to use the word and I really think that the way that it's been used now has been bastardized a little bit from the original research, which was by Carol Dweck. And it's become this sort of buzzword that sort of means more of this nebulous concept. But I think it's important to understand that growth mindset versus fixed mindset, these are in a way almost personality attributes that have been developed since usually a a young age. And one of the characteristic differences is the response that someone has to making mistakes and to difficulty. So someone with a fixed mindset is seeking validation because they are obsessed about an outcome. Their primary focus is to have a positive outcome. Whereas someone with a growth mindset, the outcome is a side effect of the process and they're focused on the process. Making mistakes is something that they are thriving in. They're actually looking for those mistakes because they see them as growth opportunities. Whereas with a fixed mindset, the mistake actually starts to create insecurity. It challenges their sense of identity and in some cases, their sense of self-worth. So those with a growth mindset because they aren't having like an existential crisis every single time they make a mistake, (laughs) they're able to throw themselves in the deep end and learn a lot more effectively. There's a big issue in the corporate space, I think, when people say growth mindset, growth mindset, have more of it, have more of it, without recognizing what are the constituents behind it. And that can actually make things worse because now you have all these people that know what growth mindset is, recognize they don't have it, but they're not given the skills to realistically develop them. So now they feel even worse because now they know that there's a big disparity between what they should be and then where they are. And there seems to be no way to bridge that gap. And I think that's probably doing more harm than good. And if someone has a fixed mindset, you said it obviously starts early age. Yeah. Is it too late for someone at an older age in their 20s or 30s to switch? And, and what do leaders need to sort of, you know, a couple of little tips to leaders that can actually encourage that going from a fix to a growth? So there's not a wealth of research on this. So I'm going to draw a lot from my personal practice, working with the, the people that I work with. In my practice, there is resistance, but it takes time. It's possible, but it, it's not going to happen overnight, obviously. But in some cases, it can take months, sometimes even years to create that change. I think what leaders can do is to be aware of when they are asking questions or demanding things of people that place the importance or the value of them in their role or even as a person sometimes based on the outcome that's being produced. And this can go really, really deep. For example, let's say that you have a new graduate that you've just employed, a new member of your team, and uh, you assign them a certain task. Most of the time, the success of that task is based on the outcome of that task. There isn't too much thought given in terms of what is the process that they're doing. And if there is, it's usually retrospective based on the task. So if they failed the task, then we look at the process and see, well, where did we go wrong? And if they succeeded on the task, well, we don't need to care about the process because the task was completed successfully. Sounds like our office. (laughs) (laughs) It's the overwhelming majority. So a better way to do it would be when we're setting a task, the first step of the task should be to map out what the process is and then to say, okay, you're new to this. We don't expect you to be perfect. No even moderately decent leader expects someone new to be perfect at their job straight away. But it's about what we're doing with that expectation. So we don't expect you to be perfect. And there are 10,000 ways you could do this wrong. But you, you'll probably only make four or five mistakes. So in the first stage, what we're going to do is I want you to map out the process and we're going to figure out what are the mistakes that you're most likely to make. 
And every time we discover a possible mistake or a weakness, we celebrate that's a win. Oh, great job. You picked up on that. I'm really impressed that you were able to pick up on that. Most people don't pick up on that on the first time. And once we're happy with the process, then we can say, okay, well, just go and do it and we'll see how it goes. And then afterwards, if the outcome was successful, we would still do the reflection and would say, after your experience, did you feel that there are any other mistakes that you were going to make that you could reflect on? So did you get lucky in having a good outcome? Or if there was a bad outcome, then we could reflect on that, you know, obviously differently by saying, well, how did things go wrong? But making sure that the focus is on saying, oh, so these were the mistakes. So we still won. Oh, that's good. That's good. We figured out where the mistakes were. Oh, that was a really good thing. Oh, by the way, you know, just these errors, can you just correct that and just come back to me later? Yeah. 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 That's a really, really, it's encouraging mistakes, right? Isn't it? It's about saying, it's not even, we want you to make mistakes. Maybe it's not even encouraging. It's It's more than that. It's It's more. The whole structure, the whole framing of the work environment, the idea of performance is that the primary outcome of peak performance is the ability to engage in and thrive in and work with your mistakes at a very fast frequency rather than the outcome. It's the understanding that we all have as professionals that the outcome is a symptom of the process. We all know that, but there's a sense of insecurity, especially from a business's point of view, to say, okay, so therefore we're actually going to use that as the primary metric for success because you need the outcomes at the end of the day. So you need to have in a way that belief that, yes, if we just triple down on process mistake-finding behavior, the outcome will become better over time. And it creates a really great culture as well. Yeah, I love it. I want to just reflect on my university days. I generally studied just to pass an exam, but many months later, I would really not retain too much of what I've actually studied. You've got some videos out there and then you've talked about this on your podcast. Uh, And there are times when actually I don't even know what I'm doing Mm. and I'll retain it. I feel like there is times where I'm studying in a way that makes me retain something. Mm. And I actually do know when I'm not going to retain it. So can you talk about what's happening in our brain and what are people doing right to retain and wrong not to retain? So that's a big question. That's actually a big part of that. This two and a half hour workshop that I'm going to be doing later this evening around why do we forget fundamentally? So we know that things are more memorable when certain elements are there, but we chalk it up to saying, well, it just happens. Some things tend to be more memorable. We're not thinking about it in terms of what can we do to change and modify our learning process to exploit the elements that do make things more memorable and then minimize the things that make things not memorable. So if we think about the things that are just inherently more memorable, they're usually things that we're more interested in, the things that we feel are more practically applicable. We can summarize all of that by saying we feel it's more relevant. We're more interested in things that are relevant to us. We can see the applicability of things if we see it's relevant to us. This word relevance is this catch-all term. If it is relevant, your brain will naturally hold on to information for longer. And one of the side effects here, if something is relevant, we often see how it's connected to lots of other things. And therefore, we are able to use that knowledge more effectively too, because it's more connected. So the trick is to increase and force the brain to increase the relevance of new information. And so there's lots of things that we can do to force relevance. So one of those things would be trying to create analogies or find similar prior experiences or knowledge that we can use to explain or rationalize this new piece of information. But sometimes that's not possible. So the tricky part is that when we're learning new information, sometimes there isn't prior knowledge necessarily, especially if we're learning a lot of new information. So classic example here, think about sitting your chartered accountancy exams. There's a bulk of new information and you know it is relevant. At the same time, it's kind of not relevant as well. And so it's hard to just tell your brain, 
I need this, therefore make it relevant. Your brain doesn't see it that way. And if we don't have enough prior knowledge to leverage off, it's very hard to force that state. So what we can do instead is we can work in these sort of passes or layers of the information. So if we don't think about that information as page one to page 100, and we just think about it as knowledge, like how knowledge would exist in the human brain. It's a sea of knowledge and you can swim freely in it. That's how it should end up being. And we just get rid of the idea that it's presented to us in this linear ordered format. There are going to be certain pieces of information in that big block of what you're studying that are naturally more relevant to you because you just happen to have a bit more prior experience or whatever it is. You could be a competitive swimmer and this analogy and or this framework that's used for taxation somehow reminds you of something that you learned when you were swimming. And you could say, oh, you know what? That reminds me of this thing. And that connection could actually make it more relevant. So what we do is we start by finding what's relevant and we learn what's relevant first. And then we have slightly more knowledge than we did 20, 30 minutes ago. So now if we go through the same material again, something that was previously irrelevant is now more relevant because we have slightly more prior knowledge. So what we're actually doing is we're saying, well, we know we need prior knowledge to make sense of new information and make it relevant. But if I don't have prior knowledge, what do I do? Well, the answer is you create prior knowledge, which seems an oxymoron. It seems impossible. But by working in this way, it means that each new piece of information is always reasonably relevant to us because we're actively skipping things that are not relevant until a later time where it becomes relevant. So often we'd say, oh, then I'd be learning out of order. And then what if I miss all these details? But no, 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 we're not learning out of order. We're learning in the right order. It was presented to us in the wrong order, right? We're learning the right order for our brain, for what we find is relevant. And this is where individual differences really shine through in terms of prior experiences and prior knowledge and things. And then after that, yes, sure, you might've missed something. So by all means, go through, start to finish, see if there's anything that you missed. You can always pick things up later but you should never compromise on building that relevance at the first possible stage just because you're afraid of missing something when you've got the option of coming back to it later and just picking up on it anyway. If it's irrelevant at the end of the day, it's going to be irrelevant, right? So if there's something that you look at and it's initially irrelevant and it might take you 15 minutes to sit down and really go through it. If you learned something that was more relevant first and then came back to that, maybe it'd only take you 30 seconds to learn that same amount. But if after doing that, maybe three or four times, there are still things that seem irrelevant then we didn't lose anything here. We didn't lose anything. Something that was irrelevant is now still irrelevant. And we can cover that the same way that we normally would have. This is just one uh, potential strategy. There's so, so much many more others. that we can talk about. It's one little insight. You've got to sign up to the workshop. Maybe you can um, sneak into the one you're doing this afternoon. Yeah. The other question I've got is when you learn CA, CPA, or even when you're at university, it's structured like learning. One of the things that I'm really passionate about is reading. So I read a lot about different things, whether it's leadership management and, and this reading styles or the writing styles can be different. Some are storytelling, some are more lecture style based. What advice do you have people that read a lot? Mm. Can they apply the same tip that you just gave around retention in an exam or how do I read a book now and retain it? I generally highlight stuff and then I'll be reading on the couch. I'm like, oh shit, I better go to the study and start writing some notes. I'm, I'm like, I don't know how to retain yeah. and I'm getting confused onto mm. the books that I read because I know my memory is not going to keep all of it because yeah. it's like 300 pages, thousands of words. What advice do you have for people that love to read but want to read for education mm. purposes? So a common problem that I see with professionals is that there are methods of learning that they picked up when they were going through school and uni. And then there are methods of learning that they picked up on the job. 
And the on-the-job type of learning tends to be generally much more effective. And then when they're trying to learn in slightly more familiar academic settings, they revert to the techniques they used in school and in university. So in real-world professional learning, you're often not saying, oh, hold on, let me highlight this and then write some notes on it. It's usually something that's a little bit more authentic or organic or just on the fly, but your memory is enhanced that way. The difference with this more structured learning is that information is coming in at very high density. There's a lot of information coming in a very short period of time. And you're expected to reach a relatively high level of mastery of that knowledge, not just remembering what was said, but being able to work with that knowledge in a robust way. So one of the things that I recommend is, yes, you can use the same strategy that I've just talked about, but there are other things that we can do to layer on top of that to make it even more relevant. So the first thing is to be very clear about why you are learning about this particular issue. Have a clear problem or an application before we even start reading. It's tempting to say, oh, there's this new book and everyone says, oh, it's the, it's a business book of the year. Everyone's saying, oh, you should read it. You don't have to read it. No. You don't have to read it if it's not going to be something that's relevant for you. So I'm a huge proponent of reading in these sprints. Don't just constantly consume information. Consume information when that information is going to be purposeful for you. And when that information is not purposeful for you, don't feel the need to consume that information. So here's an example in my personal life. Let's say that I'm going into a, a, a new overseas market and I want to learn a lot about the nature of that overseas market. It's kind of not enough. What exactly do I mean by nature of an overseas market? Am I talking about the demographic, the people, the culture, the financial state? What am I talking about? So be very clear in terms of what type of information I'm missing. What do I actually need to know that's going to put me in a better position to make better decisions or execute more effectively? Then scope out the resources to see what should I be reading to fit this? Is it a Harvard Business Review? Is it an Audible? Is it a business book? Is it a, a case report? You know, is it a primary source research article? And it's often going to be a mix of these things. And then collect them. And you may end up collecting 20 to 30 of these different sources. Go through and prioritize and find maybe five or six or you know, up to even sometimes 10 of the ones that you think is perfectly suited for the problem that you have. And then go through to read all of these sources simultaneously. This is a technique called syntopical reading. So the idea is that we're reading about the entire topic all at once. The premise is that one single resource is often not going to provide a comprehensive enough angle. And when you're in the early stages of learning, one of the most important things is to appreciate the big picture very, very quickly. So if you're only reading on a certain angle and you get really, really deep on that, and you read about another angle, then you're sort of working in these silos. It takes X amount of time to go deep into one angle and X amount of time to work in, a, in another angle. Whereas if you were to go shallow but broad and work your way through depth slower over time, you've got more networks and more connections and more far-reaching points that you can use to build relevance. Things are more relevant more easily because you have a wider appreciation of how that knowledge can be used. One of the great things about this is that after the first three chapters of reading through each of these resources, your ability to retain information will start going up geometrically because you're tackling so many of these different angles, the ability to create relevance is becoming easier and easier and easier and easier because you've got so many possible angles to work with. And then it will take you, let's say, a week to cover just chapter one of five different sources. And then it will take you another week to get to chapter two and then a week later, you're at chapter four. And then a week later, you're at chapter nine. And then a week later, you're finished. So the total amount of time it would take to cover the books and cover the resources is roughly the same. But the amount you're able to hold on to is 
incomparably higher. This is how you can develop deep levels of mastery in a very short period of time. This is how you can be starting a new tech project when you've got a finance background and you can talk to the, the software developer and you can talk their language and you can manage them ultra effectively, extract maximum value. This is the way that you can enter new markets and know so much about it. No one's gonna be able to play you because you know it maybe deeper than that person might know it in certain angles and you can work with that lingo. So this is the way that the world's sort of top performers will learn. And the technique that I've talked about is an adaptation of a concept called syntopical reading, S-Y-N, syntopical reading. Wow, this has blown my mind. Because generally what I'll do is, the book I'm reading at the moment is called Atomic Habits, yeah, very popular. Yeah, and I love the book. And I, I have lots of habits. I actually am a creature of habit. And I'm reading this book. It's the only thing I'm reading about habits, about a quarter of the way through it. But it's not the technique that you've shown. Whereas I do want to change some habits and I want to learn how to create habits. There's lots, and I've never really dived into habit creation. And yeah, I've just picked this book up because it's the bestseller. Yeah. I haven't applied your technique. Yeah. And I know that if I did, I can see now the way that you've explained it. It's going back to that, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Why that book? Why are you trying to learn it? And mapping it out a little bit in your mm. head and then tackling that in a structured way with, yeah. you know, take, you know, looking at it, the overarching helicopter view and then applying your technique. Whereas here, I've just picked the book up because I'm interested and I'm up to chapter, I don't know, six or something. And yeah, it's pretty slow going, I have to say. And I don't know how much I'm retaining of it yet because yeah. I feel like I haven't assessed that until I finish it. Yeah. And I'll probably be about a month later, I'll be like, no idea what I read. This is, this <laughs> is the thing, the illusion of learning. Sometimes people will buy a book and not even read it. <laughs> but there's the sensation that I'm learning because I'm engaging in this activity. It's kind of this consumerism hit when it comes to learning. And it's even deeper when you say, oh, well, I did read it, but then how much did you retain? And then how much are you able to apply and how deeply can you apply it? So there's often this very superficial outcome measurement of learning where it's, yes, I've covered the content or I flicked through the pages. And that is conditioned to us through the education system, I think. And so as adults where we have, you know, like sentience, you know, yeah, and we've got the self-agency, it's our responsibility to say, okay, look, I've got these existing bad habits and perspectives when it comes to learning. I've got so much to learn. I don't have time to do all this planning and scoping and figuring out the problem and inspecting the resources. I need to get into it. I need to cover the content. But the idea is that no, if the outcome is to cover content, sure, go into it. If the outcome is to have deep, meaningful, long lasting learning, it's a much more involved process. I will say though, when it comes to atomic habits, because I've read it myself and then I've also looked at the primary research around habit building and there's other books and things. And there's a model that I teach in my program as well around habit building. There are a couple of things that James Clare talks about that I think a little contentious and there are some angles that he's missing. But by and large, Atomic Habits is probably a rare exception to a book that is written extremely well that covers a wide range of angles and explains them with a high level of accuracy. It is very uncommon to find a book that will cover a topic which, you know, we say habit building. We say habit building because Atomic Habits was created. Before Atomic Habits, people don't think about habit building as just a single term. It is a massive field of research. I got to give props to James Clear because it's a very rare exception. So if that's the only book you're reading, you're probably not doing too bad. Okay, so I don't need to go back and scope this out. No, no, I will take some tips on what you said. I think it'll go back to, I need to define the purpose really, really well. I know there's a few things that I'd like to change in how I approach life and habits is what I've identified as potentially the solution. So I'll add just one more thing is that 
after you've done the sprint of reading, you should have a period where you're not consuming more information so that you can deeply apply what you've learned and you can go and feed that back. So often when you apply it, you'll find more gaps and then you have to go back to that resource. But if you're constantly consuming information, you don't give yourself the chance to consolidate that. So I'll usually read intensively sort of 20 to 50 different things within a period of a month. And then I'll spend three months consuming almost nothing new, but just deeply, deeply, deeply consolidating, going back to the resources and just getting to a point where now that is part of who I am. That's my life. That's my schema. I'm not going to forget that ever. And I can move on to my next sprint. Yeah, I like that because one of the things that happened when I was reading Atomic Habits, like in a quarter of the way through or so, I just want to apply some of the mm. things in the first few chapters. I'm like, I want to put the book down because I'm waste, not wasting time, but it's like I've spent three hours to get through the next few pages or whatever it was. I'd rather do, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's this chicken and egg of, yeah. so I think the sprint, get it done. And then apply, apply, apply before you consume something else is great advice. Yeah. And in this case where you're thinking, yep, I'm already getting to the point where I want to apply it. Just just stop there and just okay. apply. Sometimes some resources are so dense. I find this, especially with Harvard Business Reviews, they're really dense. Sometimes I'll read through one page and think, you know what? I actually need to test this in my organization for the next month. And then I'll go back to it. So in some cases, the information source is so dense that you should just practice it straight away. When you get that feeling, I want to practice it, go ahead and do it, especially yeah. if it's a skill. Yeah, I love it. Thanks for listening to part one of this two-part chat. Join us next episode for the conclusion of this conversation. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer, at Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952, and we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing, and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.